Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, the 12th chapter of this marvelous book of Revelation. There is so much glory in this book that even if the images and pictures boggle you, who are the two witnesses from chapter 11, even if it's too much, there is still low-hanging fruit on this tall, tall tree that you can grab. And I want us to pull some of that low-hanging fruit today. Revelation chapter 12, and commentators call this the high point of the book. But I don't agree. I would call it, as it is, the midpoint of the book. Because many commentators who will call this the high point of the book believe that Revelation is a series of repetitions so that it continually tells the same story. Do you recall what I've been teaching each week so far? There are three large views of Revelation. We can call one the preterist view. And that view says Revelation is all when? Well done. It's all in the past. One view says 80%. 90%, maybe more of Revelation is when? In the past. Another view is called the idealist school. And they would say it keeps repeating. So the whole story of Revelation is repeating. Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is the story of the church. That's why we have seven letters to seven different churches. And then from chapters 4 upward, it just repeats the story of the church only from a different angle. Maybe you're asking yourself, how does it repeat? They would say this, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 shows the life of the church with the letters. Revelation 4 and 5 shows the view of the church from heaven. Revelation 6 to 10, you remember that from last week? The seven seal judgments? And then the seven bowl, a trumpet judgments. Those judgments are just looking at the church age from the persecution we have gone through. So they say we're just repeating ourselves. And then they'll say when we get to chapter 12, we have reached, what did they call it? The high point of the book. But that's not quite accurate. Revelation 12 is the midpoint of the book because after chapter 12, You've still got 10 chapters left. So let's look tonight at what actually happens in the story. And we're going to see that the preterist school and the futurist school need to remember that one important fact about Revelation 12. And I'm teaching, of course, from the futurist perspective. That is, most of Revelation is where, Nico? Still in the future. It has not yet Happened. Most, 80% of Revelation is still in the future. 90% of Revelation is in the future. So the preterist says 80-90% is in the past. And the, the idealist school says 80-90% is happening right now. And it's always been happening. And the futurist school says, no, 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 it's when. What does Revelation 12 tell us? Here it is. There is a spiritual war. If you're taking notes, you could put down Revelation 12, spiritual warfare. I want to begin with an illustration. I do not usually start sermons with an illustration because Martin Lloyd-Jones did not use sermon illustrations to begin his sermons. I used sermon illustrations for about 13 or 14 years until I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, and then I stopped using them. So if you listen to my sermons now, I almost always jump right in. But on this one, I want to give an illustration. If you try to enroll at a theological college, and you ask that college, please let me see a list of the courses on many colleges in this country, including one on the street just up north. It's not a college, it's a church that has a school for pastors. They will offer courses on spiritual warfare. 
In fact, the pastor that I was speaking with said he was trained in a school that had many classes on spiritual warfare. He told me one of the classes talked about how to bind territorial demons. So you would, you would come into an area like Louis Tricart and you would find a high point, like maybe going up on the mountain. And then looking out, you would raise up your hands over the mountain and say, over the, over the town and say, I bind you demons. And they taught him to do this at that class. My response to that would be, when does the Bible ever tell us to talk to demons? Talk to God. That's called prayer. Why would you talk to demons? Well, they learned that in their what class? Spiritual warfare. Our world today is fascinated with spiritual warfare because they think it has to do with putting your hand in the name of Jesus and shouting and pushing people down and hitting them. But I want us to look at Revelation 12 and you tell me if any two words describes this better than spiritual warfare. Let's turn it around. You look through life, look through anywhere in the church and see if you can find any idea that more accurately deserves the label spiritual warfare than this right here. Let's go verse by verse as we have been doing. Revelation 12 verse 1. There appeared a great wonder in heaven. What is this wonder? Now, in my Bible, I've underlined all the pictures. So perhaps you want to underline. Now, I did it with brown because I'm using about six different colors in Revelation. But you might want to mark the pictures in this. There are 15 of them in this chapter. But we know very clearly what five of them mean. And from those five, we can figure out most of the others. Verse 1. There appeared this wonder in heaven, a woman. That's our first picture. So maybe in your notes you want to just list all the pictures, and then beside them you can can write what they each mean. Or you can put that in your Bibles if you have space. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. So there's the first three images. Woman, sun, moon. Have you ever seen a woman dressed in the sun? With the, with the moon as her shoes? On her head she has a crown with 12 stars. There's the fourth picture. I told you there are 15. We're done with verse 1 and we've already seen how many of the pictures? Four. Let's look at verse 2. And she was with child. There's the fifth picture. We've already seen a third of the pictures and we're not even done with verse 2. She cried in pain of birth to be delivered of her child. Verse 3, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. There's number 6. Having seven heads, number 7. Ten horns, number 8. Seven crowns, number 9, on his heads. So there's a dragon with how many heads? How many horns? That means each head has a horn, but one head has multiple horns. And how many crowns? And it says upon his heads. So each one of the heads has a crown. Verse 4. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. Stars. There's number, are we at nine? Stars. There's the next image. And cast them down to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman, which was ready to be delivered of her child, because he wanted to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Let's pause right there because... Right there, we have thousands of years of history. And in verse number five, we can determine very clearly 
the most important picture in this story. So you tell me, what is the picture that we immediately know? We know what that picture means. What is it? The child. Who is the child? Give me the identity of the child. Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what flags in the verse tell you that it's Jesus? There are about four of them. Some of them are easy, some of them are more difficult. What flags in verse 4 and 5 will tell you? From verse 5. He will rule all the nations. So there's number one. If you're making a list in your notes or if you're making a list in your Bibles, you know for sure who is it that's going to rule all nations. Well, you know that's Christ. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 11. And throughout the Old Testament prophets, that must be the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. What's another flag that tells us this is the Lord Jesus? Caught up to God. Caught up to God. What happens in Acts chapter 1? As he's teaching the disciples and they're talking, suddenly, right in front of them, what happens to Jesus? He is caught up to God. Who else in the Bible was taken up to God? There's two other people. Who, who was it? Elijah and? Enoch. Enoch. Enoch from Genesis chapter 5. We have Enoch was taken up to heaven. Elijah was taken up to heaven. Question. Was there ever a promise that Enoch or Elijah would rule all the nations? Was that promise ever given? No, it wasn't. There was no promise given. So who can this be if it's There's only three people in the Bible who were taken up to heaven. Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus. So that's our second flag. What's another flag in the passage that shows us this is the Lord Jesus Christ? It's in verse 4. The dragon wants to eat him. The dragon wants to destroy this child. Who does the dragon hate more than anyone else? The Lord Jesus. Absolutely. John 7, verse 7. John 15, verse 18. And many other places in Scripture. Satan despises Jesus and will do all that he can to destroy him. Verse number 4 says he's waiting to devour the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is caught up to heaven. There's one more flag. Where is the mention of the Father. Is there any mention of the Father of the child? Now you know the Bible, right? If you read Genesis chapter 5, it lists men who've lived and died. How many women does it list? Zero. It mentions Cain took a wife. It mentions Laban had a wife, but it doesn't even mention, it doesn't mention their lives or when they lived and died. Genesis 5 lists men or women? Men. Genesis chapter 11, when it's listing the genealogies, does it list men or women? Men. The patriarchs, are they men or women? The 12 tribes, are there any women who are named among the 12 tribes? Throughout the Hebrew Bible, the word for man, Adam, Adam is red. The word for man is used throughout the Hebrew Bible to say all people, both men and women. In the New Testament, anthropos, the word for man, is used consistently to speak of men and women. Of the 12 apostles, how many are women? Zero. Of the pastors in the New Testament, how many are women? Of the kings in the Old Testament, how many are women? Trick question. How many are women in the kings of the Old Testament? One. Good job. Athaliah. Of the judges in the Old Testament, how many are women? Twelve judges, one woman, Deborah. We've got one woman judge, one woman king. Very, it's usually, what is the usual pattern? Male headship. Why is this woman mentioned? Her name is not even mentioned, but the husband's not mentioned. Well, you know the answer, don't you? 
Because who is the earthly father of Jesus Christ? There was none. I tricked you. There was no earthly father of Jesus Christ. Which is why he's not mentioned in the passage. And the fourth flag that our Lord Jesus Christ is referenced. But notice this in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness. When does she run to the wilderness? After what? The childbirth. After the child is born, and after the child lives, and after the child is taken up where? Yeah, in verse 5, the child is taken up to heaven, and then the woman runs away. Why does the woman run away? In verse 6, the woman flies into the wilderness because she has a place prepared for God, prepared of God, so that they would feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. We saw that last week, three and a half years. Yes, sir. Could the plane into the wilderness be 70 AD there? We're going to come back to that. So hold on that for just a moment. Let me go through another segment and then we'll come back. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. When does this war take place? Michael and his angels fought against two. And the dragon fought and his angels. So the dragon has what? He has angels. When is he fighting? Is this after the man-child has gone to heaven? Let's keep reading verse 8. And prevail and did not prevail, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was done what? What happened to the great dragon in verse 9? He was thrown down. And now we know the second image. We have 15 images. We know the first image. The child is Jesus. Now we know for sure who the dragon is. Verse 9. Look at all these names. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. Satan is a Hebrew word which means enemy or accuser. Devil means an evil spirit. He's the snake. He's the winged snake. That's the dragon. He's the devil, an evil spirit. He's the enemy. We know for sure now who this dragon is. And where is he thrown down to? He's thrown down to the earth. Now jump down to verse 12. We're going to come back, but look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. Why? Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Why? He knows that he has what? The war in heaven takes place before the woman has the child. The war in heaven takes place back in Genesis chapter 1. But look what the story did. It starts with the woman because she's the main point of the story. It says, I want you to think about this woman and what she does and what happens to her. But now, now we've come to the point where her child goes up to heaven and now you see... Not only did she go to heaven, now let's remember the war. If we had started with the war, perhaps you would have thought the war was the main point. The main point is what's happening to this woman. You see, the war in heaven was very important. It set the stage for the devil to be here on earth, for him to persecute the woman. Now let's go back and try to answer Caleb's question. And we have to start by asking ourselves, who is this woman? Who is the woman? Well, many commentators say the woman is the church. Problem. Was the church pregnant with Jesus? No. When did the church begin? Before Jesus came, while Jesus was on the earth... Or after Jesus went to heaven. So when when did the church begin? And you have to give me a verse. Did the church begin before Jesus came to earth? Or while Jesus was on the earth? Or after Jesus went to heaven? I've got a muffin in that room for whoever can get the right answer. With a Bible verse. 
after he went to heaven. Verse. Um, Matthew 16, 18. That's worth half a muffin. Give me a better verse. That's the verse. <laughs> or Ephesians 3. That's the verse. And I thought, you can get it. You're in Ephesians now. <laughs> Acts chapter 2 or Matthew 16, 18 is a good verse. Or Ephesians chapter 3. The church was a mystery that was not known. Are you reading Ephesians 3 with us this month? Put your hands up, whoever's reading Ephesians. Everything? Okay. Have you got to Ephesians? You've seen mystery, 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 mystery. What is that mystery? He tells you in Ephesians 3. He says, this is the mystery that was hidden from all the ages in the past. And this is why I preach, this is Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8, why I preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles. That's the mystery. No one knew the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or Ephesians 3, that was verse 8 that I just quoted. Verse 10, two verses later, the angels are watching the church to praise His grace. What is the mystery? It's the grace of God in Christ. You didn't know it. I didn't know it. Adam didn't know it. Joseph didn't know it. Elijah didn't know it. Solomon didn't know it. Isaiah and Jeremiah didn't know it. And John the Baptist didn't know it. No one knew. Ephesians chapter 3. It was hidden from before the foundation of the world. Matthew chapter 13 uh, someone help me with the verse. I think it's about verse 35. Jesus says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter mysteries which have not been told from the foundation of the world. He's teaching them about something that's going to happen. And they're clueless because they did not know about the church. If they knew about the church in the Old Testament, then why would Jesus tell them in Matthew 13 verse, I think it's verse 35. Is it? Verse 35, I'm going to open my mouth in parables and in dark sayings. I'm going to tell you things that have never been revealed before. Why would he say I'm going to tell you things that have never been revealed? Interestingly, John Calvin, because he's a covenant theologian, did not, in his commentary on Matthew, he practically skips over that verse. Most of the verses in Matthew, in his commentary, he has comments on. On that verse, kind of skips over it. I wonder why. Because he believes that the church was revealed in the Old Testament. Well, if it was, then what does that verse mean? Well, here in chapter 12, we have this question of the woman. Many commentators say it's the church. Now, to be fair to the commentators, this is what they'll say. You've got, you've got to hear how they say it. The commentators will say this. They'll say, the woman is the church of Israel and later the church of the New Testament. What do you think about that? Does the Bible ever use the word church to describe Israel? No. Not in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there is only one reference. It's in uh, Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is preaching. In Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is preaching, he says, the ecclesia in the wilderness and he means the congregation in the wilderness because the word ecclesia means congregation or gathering. He meant the congregation in the wilderness. But some covenant theologians grab that verse because it's the only one. And they try to say there is a church in the wilderness. But I ask you, did the people in the wilderness, did they baptize anyone? No. Did they church discipline people? No. Did they... Have pastors? Who's the name of the pastor? Did they have, did they have, um, um, did they see anyone born again? They, they did not have the church. Let me ask this. Did they have the Holy Spirit? If they had the Holy Spirit, because some people like to say, no, no, no. Read Exodus, I think it's chapter 24, 25. Read Exodus 24, 25. The story of building the tabernacle. Those two minutes says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. If the, quote, church in the Old Testament was filled with the Holy Spirit, then what good was the book of Acts chapter 2? Let me ask you, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down and 3,000 people were converted in one day, was that a big thing or a small thing? Was that a great gift or a small gift? If the Holy Spirit's been with you the whole time, then Acts chapter 2 is nothing. It's business as usual. 
Right? If the Holy Spirit's been there, as the covenant theologians like to say, hey, church in the Old Testament, we've all, we've all been the same. We had baptism in the Old Testament. It was just called circumcision. That's what they'll say. Can you believe it? Nico, can, can, I mean, if I, if I say, let's go get baptized, that's not quite the same thing as circumcision. <laughs> okay. I have some people in the class right now who are waiting, and I'm sure they would feel a little more reticent if we were not baptizing, if we were circumcising. In the Old Covenant, though, they did not do that. They did not have baptism. They did not have the Lord's table. They did not have uh, church discipline. They did not have pastors. They did not have verse-by-verse teaching. They did not have the Lord's Day because they did not know the name of Jesus. They did not know about the resurrection. And most importantly, they did not have the Holy Spirit uniting them to Christ. That's exactly what Ephesians 3 says is the mystery. The Holy Spirit unites you to Christ. All that to say, sorry, all that to say, who's the woman? Revelation 12. Israel. I want to, I want to be able to think it's Israel. Israel's the answer. Israel's the answer of who the woman is. Why? How do we know? Look down to chapter 12, verse 1. On her head, what does she have? Sun. She has a crown with 12 stars. Where have you seen the number 12 before? 12 apostles, 12 tribes. Well, it can't be the 12 apostles because that would be the church. And this woman has Jesus and births Jesus. And the church doesn't birth Jesus. The church is birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit and and the Lord Jesus. So this has to be Israel. And that makes sense because, look in verse 2. She cries in pain. What happened at the birth of Jesus? Matthew chapter 2. It was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. What happens at the birth of Jesus that involved weeping? The slaughtering of the infants. And in Matthew chapter 2 it says, As Jeremiah the prophet spoke, there will be weeping. Rachel, that's a, a speaking of the people of Israel. And it uses Rachel as their ancient mother. Rachel will be weeping for her children. Exactly right there. Matthew chapter 2, when the babies are slaughtered, is prophesied and referred to right there in Revelation 12, verse 2. And the great red dragon, he stands up to, des- to devour the man-child. But he's not able to devour the man-child. Yes, go ahead. Um, does, that, does verse 1 where it says the sun, moon, and 12 stars, is that a cross-reference of Joseph's dream in Genesis? The commentators say so, but I don't know what it means if it is. So maybe. I told you up front, I know five of the pictures for sure, and there's how many pictures? Fifteen. I know five for sure, five pretty sure, and five I don't know, and that's two of them. I don't know what the sun and the moon mean, but many of the commentators will say, that's picturing back to Genesis when Joseph had a vision, and his vision was that the sun and moon and stars would bow down to him, the commentators will say, see there, perhaps that's true. I don't know. If that seems compelling to you, it seems compelling to many people who publish books as well. But I'm not sure. But I do know this. Whatever the sun and moon are, it's not the main point. Because we're getting to the main point. We haven't got there yet. We're getting there. And that's not the main point. And you can be sure of this. Almost universally in every verse and every chapter of the Bible, if there's something that's so hard you just cannot figure it out, it's probably not the main point. Does that make sense? Yes, I would like to know what the sun and the moon are. Yes, I'd like to know what the seven, the seven crowns are on the, on the dragon and the ten horns. Do I know who all the ten horns are? I don't know. But I know that the main point is not hidden because God did not write the book to say, here, what I'm giving you is a blindfold. He wrote the book to give you a torch so that you can see. So if there's something that is, wow, that's, that's a little dark, then you can be 99% sure that's not the main point. Let's keep going here. In verse number six, the woman flees into the wilderness Why would she flee into the wilderness? We'll come back to the days just now. Go down to verse 13. 
Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was cast on the earth, what does he do to the woman? He persecutes, he persecutes the woman who bore what? Jesus. He persecutes the woman who bears Jesus. Verse 14, and to the woman, there were given two wings of a great eagle. That's one more of the pictures. Two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Some people have said that the wings of an eagle is the uh, country of the United States because the eagle is the national bird and America has constantly protected Israel. That's rubbish. That's not, that's not true. I don't know exactly what the wings of the eagle is. I know that it means some kind of protection. But there's no good reason to think that John was prophesying the national bird of America. It's probably more connected to Isaiah 40, verse 31. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And there in the wilderness, she will be nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Verse 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman. That he might cause her to be carried away with the flood. Here's the main point that I want to make on on this section before we go back and see those, the war in heaven. The serpent is trying to attack and kill who? Jesus has already gone to heaven. Now who is the serpent attacking? Why? The child is gone. Satan always hates what God has always loved. Whatever it is that God sets his love on, Satan sets his hatred on. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 1 it says to Jesus, you have, God has anointed you above all those around you. Why? Because you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. When you love what God loves and hate what God hates, you are unusually blessed and close to God. If someone wants to say, I just don't feel close to God. How can I really know God? Answer, love what he loves and hate what he hates. And in one sense, that's very, very easy. Love righteousness and hate sin. And that right there will be a big enough command for you to keep you going 70 or 80 years. Just trying to obey that. Just make it your goal to really hate Every sin and love everything that's righteous and holy. Pray for that every morning. Read your Bible with that as your goal. God, change my heart so that I will not love this world or the things in the world. Because if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Satan hates the woman because Satan hates what God loves. And now let me talk to you about a history of the Jews. Today in research, I was looking up a history of the Jews. And I began just over here, this book. I read this book, Jerusalem Besieged, which is fantastic. It's a history of all the wars on Jerusalem. Very interesting. I started this book, History of the Jews, and got to there. I should really read this book the whole way through probably by Paul Johnson. And then this one, 1948, is a history of the first modern war against Israel. If you have, you might want to put this on a paper. You don't have to. What I'm going to give you for the next few minutes is a history of anti-Semitism. A history of anti-Semitism. Perhaps what you want to do is just put bullets underneath that heading. If you want to keep notes. Or you can just listen as I try to tell the story. Anti-Semitism. What an ugly, clunky word. Let's take it apart. I wish I had my board here to write on. Take off the word anti and you're left with what? Semitism. Take off the ism because that just means idea. And you're left with the word Semite. Now, in English, when you have it at the end, it means person. 
Take off ite, the person. What's a sem? Oh, that's Noah's third son. Or first son, depending on how you count. Ham, Japheth, Shem. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Shem. That, that son, Shem, that's where we get the word sem from. Semite. A Semite is a child of Shem, a child of Noah. A child of Shem, that son of... Kip, can you help us? And maybe call mom if it's the gentleman. Shem is the third son or the first son of Noah, depending on how you count. And when you take his name and turn it into an adjective, you have Semite or Semitic. Now, what does it mean to be anti-Semitic? Anti means to oppose, to fight against. Anti-Semite means to hate a Jew. Anti-Semitic is to be that which hates Jewish people. So let me give you a brief history of anti-Semitism. Today I read through a list that was recorded of anti-Semitism. Hey, good evening. I'm so sorry. You're going to have to walk right out here on the side. My wife will come and show you where it is. This way. I'm so sorry. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. My wife will be here just now. I'm sorry about that. Today I was researching a history of anti-Semitism. And it is fascinating to see that anti-Semitism begins even before modern history has been recorded. Herodotus is the first, um, um, one of the first historians. Got his volume in the corner over there. Along with Thucydides, come on through. Thucydides, ancient Greek historians. Now these people, no, right through here, sweetie. These historians recorded mainly histories in the Peloponnesian Wars and in the areas of Greece and Northern Africa and Turkey, in those areas. That's where those historians recorded. If you want histories before that, you're going to have to go to the Bible. But isn't it amazing that one of the first examples of anti-Semitism is in the book of Genesis? 4,000 years ago, when the people of um, King Abimelech get angry at Isaac's servants for no good reason. And then after that, we have the Egyptians who don't want to eat or sit with Jews. Why? Why why would you not want to sit with these people? Well, for whatever reason, they don't. And then even though the Jews brought great blessing to them, in the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh puts the Jews as slaves. Why? Was it because they were so stupid? It was because they were too clever. They were too... Advanced, they were advancing too quickly. So in Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 1 really, a Pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph, and he puts the Jews under pressure. From then on, it's story after story of people who hate the Jews. Read the stories in Exodus. Exodus chapter 17, as they're coming out of the promised, as they're coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites meet them and try to kill them. Why? It even says the Amalekites came up behind the Jews and killed one after another behind them. Why? What problem do you have with the Jews? They weren't doing anything to you. They said, can we pass through your land? The people said no. So the Jews walked around the land. And they said, you know what? We're not even happy with you walking around us. We're going to come up behind you and kill off the old and the weak. That was Exodus chapter 17. And that kind of thing goes throughout the story of the Old Testament. They despise the Jews, until we come to the Assyrians, who hate the Jews. That's why Jonah did not want to go to the Assyrians in Nineveh. Why did Jonah not want to go? Because they hated him. They didn't like the Jews. Imagine during apartheid, if God called you to go preach to the Afrikaners. You said, they don't like me. That's how Jonah would have felt. That's the history. After Assyria, it's Babylon. After Babylon, it's Persia. Then it's Greece. Every power that comes to power hates the Jews. They have an irrational effort to crush the Jewish people. You know the story of Esther, don't you? The whole story is a story of anti-Semitism. Haman wants to destroy what? The whole nation. Why? Because one man won't bow down. Haman, why don't you try to just punish Mordecai? This doesn't make sense, right? 
If Lloyd breaks into my house and steals my stuff, is it logical for me to try to destroy everyone who lives in Zimbabwe? Where's the logic here? There's no connection, especially since Haman gives a huge amount of his fortune in an effort to get the power to destroy the Jews. Well, but he was also hoping that if he destroyed them, he'd be able to take their fortune. But he has to give a lot of money in order to be able to do this. He's willing to sacrifice his wealth to murder God's people. Again, we see it in the book of Daniel. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Then we get into the New Testament. The Romans, they didn't particularly hate the Jews, but they did make laws against them. When I read the history of anti-Semitism today, I was overwhelmed by how many hundreds of cases there are recorded in history of anti-Semitism. In fact, so many hundreds that after I got to 200, I stopped counting. And I was only in the 1700s. In the 18 and 1900s, there are hundreds more because there's more books written then. Then we get to the early 1900s in Russia. There is a play written called Fiddler on the Roof. That play is set in Russia around the 1900s, 1910, 1915. And in that play, there's a Jew. The star of the play is, is a Jew named Tevia. He has four daughters. Is it four? I think it's four daughters. And he wants each of them to get married off. He's very poor. And the reason he's very poor is because the Russians crush the Jewish community. And every time they make any wealth, they tax them. So as he goes through the play, which is his sad and miserable life, at the end of the play, the Russians come in and decide, we aren't even happy for you to be alive at all. And they threatened to kill all the Jews. That happened in Russia 100 years ago. 15 years later, well, 20 years later in Germany, when Adolf Hitler says, I'm going to make the Superman, he brought up his doctors and they, they've had this pseudoscience called eugenics. Eugenics was the science that said, if we pair certain genes, then we can, we can get a man who's very good at sports or piano or music or math. So they would try to find a woman and a man and say, okay, these genes won't fit. And guess what they decided? They didn't have scientific backing for it, but they had this preconceived notion. They said, blacks are very low, but there's someone even lower than the blacks. Who is it? The Jews. Now, they didn't have any IQ tests to put the blacks low. But nor did they have IQ tests to say the Jews were lower. But they despised those two groups. Well, they despised many groups. But most of all, they despised the Jews. And even though there was a thriving population of Jews in Germany at the time, they hated them. Jews were forced to wear a yellow star, a star of David, everywhere they went. So you tell that's a Jew. And then it was illegal to buy at a Jewish shop if you were a German And then Jewish shops couldn't open in certain places. And then the concentration camps came. And from 1939 to 1945, six million Jews were murdered. Hundreds of them were pushed into large rooms with low ceilings, with little fans above them. They were ordered at gunpoint to take off their clothes, men, women, and children. And they were pushed into these Large rooms jammed in, body against body into the rooms, terrified, kicked and shoved with the rifles. The doors were slammed and the little fans, the little vents in the roof, let out a gas that killed everyone inside. And those were the death chambers, the death ovens, where they murdered six million Jews 1939 to 1940. Why? Why would you do that? They were good citizens. They were hard workers. They were bringing in tax revenue. Adolf Hitler's plan made the German nation poor. Not only did it make the German nation poor because those 6 million Jews can't give their taxes anymore, but on top of that, all the soldiers that Hitler needed on the front lines, they're not on the front lines anymore. Where are they? They're back putting their guns up against women saying, get in the gas chamber. 
up against children, get in the gas chamber. Did Germany win the war or lose the war? They could have used all those guns out on the war. Hitler was so insane that he said, more than I want to win the war, I want that nation gone. Can you explain that? I can because I've read Revelation 12. The dragon is chasing the woman. That was, did you hear the dates? 1939 to 1945. In 1945, in August, the war was ended when America dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. For the next three years, there were debates about what to do with the Jewish people. <laughs> Excuse me. And then in 1948, something amazing happened. In 1948, Britain declared, with the support of America and against Russia, because those were the three great powers that won in the Second World War. So America, Russia, and Britain got together in Yalta, Poland, and had a big meeting to decide what are we going to do. And Britain and England gave up Poland to the communists, which meant millions of Poles had to suffer. But they were able to fight to give Israel a country of its own. So in 1948, Israel, as you see by the title of that book, Israel was given a country. And they were, they were said to have their freedom. I don't remember the exact date now, and I should. I think it was in June or July. Do you remember the date? In June or July, they were given their country. And it was a relatively small portion of the country of Israel. And they said, on this day at noon, Israel will become a modern nation. So the Jews knew what would happen. They knew that as soon as they signed the papers, and as soon as the British troops left, they knew that all of the Muslim troops in all the countries, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, they knew that all those troops are going to attack them. And that's exactly what happened one hour after they became a country. You can't make this up. If someone made a movie about this, you would say, that's not believable. Guess who won the war? Israel did. Not only did they win the war, they not only beat 10 times more troops than they had, they beat them immediately and even took almost twice the property that they had before. So before they were given, let's just say, these two tiles of floor, and by the time they're done destroying a force that is 10 times larger than them, now they have four tiles. How can you explain that? In this book, he references that some people in London said at one point, if you want to prove the Bible is the word of God, you only need to say one word. Jews. How can you possibly explain the Jews even being alive? There have been more attempts to destroy the Jews, maybe, than all other countries in the history of the world combined. Why? Because of Revelation 12. It's right there. 1948 wasn't the only time. That was 73 years ago. That was 1948, though. But by 1967, how many years? 1948 to 1967. Not even 20 years. Six nations came up against Israel again. And Israel destroyed them all in eight hours. <laughs> how can you explain that? That's, you can't explain that kind of victory from human perspective. In fact, Israel... As soon as the war was declared, Israel dispatched in 1967 all of their fighter jets. They flew immediately southwest and destroyed all of Egypt's air force, all of their oil fields, and most of their um, um, store of ammunition. In minutes, they had entirely taken the largest Islamic country completely out of the war. In minutes. And within less than 24 hours, they stopped the other five nations. How can you explain that? A country that is 
significantly smaller. Just look at a map. I, you know what? We have that. Yeah, let's get that. Let's get that guy. If you're listening to this, you need to go get a map of the world. Where's Israel? Where is Israel? Here it is, right here. It's right there. That little country, it's so little it can't even fit its name on it. Israel, it's out in the water. The name is in the water because it's so small. Then you see how big Egypt is? Look at how big Egypt is. Touch, touch Israel and then look at Egypt. Just so you get an idea. You see those two? Now, Egypt wasn't the only country fighting Israel. There were many countries fighting Israel. Touch Egypt, touch Israel. So you get a clear idea of where it is. And there's Israel, little, little guy. All these ones and that one going against that. And they lose so badly. There's Israel, there's Egypt. All those countries against one. You can't. There's Israel, there's Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iraq. All these countries going up against that little guy. And it was half the size at that time. Because in 1967, Israel gained more land. So you see, every time the Arabs or the Muslims attacked, there's Israel, Egypt. Every time the Muslims attacked Israel, Israel gets more land. So there has to come a point when they have to say, wait, uh, we got to use some logic here. We try to kill them, they get bigger. We try to kill them, they get bigger. Why don't we stop this? How can you explain that from an earthly point of view? And do you know what the Muslims say? It's Satan. (laughs) They do. They say it's Satan that did that. And they say that Satan is personified in America. (laughs) So Satan is helping them. But you are looking at your Bible saying, but it was written before there was a Muslim. Before Muhammad ever supposedly had a vision, Revelation 12 was in the Bible. And they said, this is what's going to happen. And it's happening. How can you explain Revelation 12? Well, they don't read the Bible, which their Quran tells them to read. And so my point is, throughout history, Israel has been attacked over and over and over. The history's not done because 1967 wasn't the last war. They fought another... Oh, by the way, this is your chart. I'm sorry. I'm rushing through your chart. Did everyone get one? Does everyone have a chart? This is a history of some of the wars and conflicts. Palestine is the modern equivalent of the biblical word Philistine. Philistine. Philistine, Palestine, they come from the same root. So the country of Philistia in the Old Testament, where Goliath comes from, would be a modern equivalent of Palestine. So some people, when they write books, want to talk about Palestine, but I don't think we should talk about Palestine because the Bible gave that land to the Jews. I think we should call it, as it's said on the map right there, Israel. Israel is the country. Now what's amazing is today in Israel... Palestinians can live for free in Israel. They can be Muslims. They can build mosques. They can have jobs. They can be elected to government. And there are Muslims, Palestinian Muslims, in the Israeli government. But in Palestine, Jews are not free. They are not allowed to worship their God. Christians are not free either. And the Muslims who live in Palestine... Live a miserable, depressed life. Look on that page. What it says, the, the, um, the, the average income. Top right, gross domestic product of Palestine is $6.6 billion. Bottom left, what's the gross domestic product of Israel? Billion. Israel is as small or smaller than Palestine. Palestine gets amazing aid every year. From every, not every, many countries in Europe and America give aid every year to Palestine. Aid, free money. And they still can't get over six billion of how much they make. Israel, even though they are constantly under attack and are constantly being attacked, and if you are a man or a woman in Israel, you have to serve in the military for at least two years, everyone, because they have to have a military constantly. 
because they're being attacked every 10 or so years. Iraq published a map of the world with no Israel on it. And they're not the only Islamic country has done that. Because they say, we do not believe in Israel. We will never, wait. Uh, we will never allow Israel to be. Or one of my Muslim friends here, I was talking to him recently, well, last year. And I said, well, how do you feel about Israel? Do you love them or do you say, I hate them? And, he's, and then, then, then he told me, you wait, you wait, mark the date. He said this, save the date, actually, that was what he said, save the date, 2021, 2022, you'll never see Israel again. I thought, no, this is amazing, your hatred, absolute, inveterate hatred, who cares about these people, let them do what they want to do, just go start a business, man. No, I will kill them, if it's the last thing I do. Every time you try to kill them, their country gets bigger. That's exactly what Revelation 12 says. They will be hated and attacked, but for some reason, they can't die. I told you this before, that Israel as a nation, you see how small it is? As a population and as a geographic size, it's something like 0.002% of the world. But they have almost 25% of all Nobel Peace Prizes, Nobel Prizes in Physics and Chemistry, Writers, some of the best writers are Jews. I've got them on that shelf right there. Albert Einstein was a Jew. Felix Mendelssohn, one of my favorite composers, was a Jew. Not even believers. Not Christian believers, but just brilliant people. How does this happen that of all the countries in the world, this country that's so small, it has one out of four of the greatest minds in the history of the world. Oh, they're Jews. How did that happen? Right here. Look at verse 16. Revelation 12, 16. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth. And swallowed up the flood. Which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was angry with the woman. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Which keep the commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now those right there are believers in Jesus Christ. Those are members of the church. Do you see? Because they're not merely Jews, but they are Jews who do what in verse 17? Those are Jews who trust in Jesus Christ. Well, I've taken too much time, but I wanted... I really wanted to close with verses 7 to 11. So just very briefly on verses 7 through 11, the war in heaven. When Michael and the dragon fight. That war set the stage for this war on earth. Because in heaven, the dragon was trying to dethrone everything that was good and true and beautiful. When the dragon came to earth, He set his sights first on that which God loved the most, his son. When his son ascended up to heaven, where does the dragon set his sights? The Jewish people. And on the church of God. I don't believe the woman here is the church. But the woman, the Israel, is not the only thing God loves. God loves a great many things. One of them is his son, Jesus. One of them is his word, One of them is Israel. One of them is the church. And so the message here, I I guess I'll just close with this. The message of Revelation 12 is this. You are in a great spiritual war. And the spiritual war is one where you fight by loving what God loves and hating what God hates. The Muslims could not be more confused. In fact, maybe the greatest error they make is thinking that the spiritual war is fought with a machine gun or an AK-47. This war was in heaven. You can't take an AK-47 to Michael, the archangel. You can't send a nuclear bomb against heaven. The spiritual war is the great thing that should dominate your mind. You should think of it constantly. You should make every decision. That's not overspeak. Every decision in light of the spiritual war. Some time ago I had the joy of preaching a sermon called 
a wartime mindset. Every decision we make, we should ask this question. Will this help my side in the spiritual war? Or will this hurt my side? Whether you buy cold drink for your kids, whether you get up early, whether you stay up late, what books you read, how you choose to entertain yourself, how many children you have, where you work, what you do for entertainment, what friends you have, every decision we make ought to be made in light of the spiritual war. This is written about Israel, but there are amazing applications for us because the spiritual war is lively and it is all around us and it is far more dangerous than a physical war could be. I close with an example from Ralph Venning's book, The Sinfulness of Sin. Ralph Venning in that book, toward the end of the book says, sin is so terrible That you should neither sin nor allow yourself to be led into sin on any account. He says, imagine a young girl who's beautiful and a boy wants to lead her into sin and uses words to convince her. And she says, no, no. And the boy says, how can I prove to you how much I love you? And the girl says, put your hand in that fire until it is completely burned. And the boy says, why would I do that? That would be completely useless. And she said, well, if you're not willing even to burn your own hand, why are you trying to burn my whole body in the fire of hell? She understood something about the spiritual war, and I hope and pray that you and I will as well. Let's close prayer. Father, help us tonight.